uh, I think part of the reason why is because we, we, we value the, the public reading of the word here that defines church. We think that that's an important part of our service. But one of the things I would say about this passage is it's incredibly difficult, right? Because it starts with this beautiful idea of these lamps that burn all the time, and then it moves to this, this notion of blasphemy. It moves to this idea that if somebody punctures that divine name, um, that they too would sort of um, carry the weight of that. And then it's got that law in there, that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which many of us are familiar with as well. So it's a very thick passage of scripture. Now this might be a little too inside baseball for most people, but I have a lot of friends who are pastors because we need friends and the only people who want to be with friends with pastors are other pastors. No, um, uh, but you know, there's a lot of them who use what's called the lectionary prescribes readings for the day. And so you know what you have to read, what the scripture is ahead of time. But not only that, like it just, it, it, it gives you what to read. And so they occasionally will look down on pastors that pick what they're going to preach on. Now, because it's a little bit easier, you get to go to the portions of scripture you like. I so wish they could be here for when we read Leviticus 24, because that is nobody's favorite portion of scripture, and it's not in the lectionary. So they don't have to, to, to fight with that and wrestle with that themselves. And uh, I think you guys know that I am strange enough that I don't pick just what would sound good to us. I'm sure there are pastors out there who pick John 3.16 all the time and just say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that would be a great sermon. But what we try to do is wrestle here with the full breadth of scripture, even stuff that maybe we don't like, even stuff that's hard to hear. I'll admit that for me, this portion, the latter part of today's portion, is probably one of the more difficult for me. I don't know why, but like, there's this Canaanite conquest in the book of Joshua, never bugged me. There's there's this notion of of um, uh, that the in in Egypt when the spirit goes out among the people and and kills the first newborns, never bugged me. Like, I just had this ability to just sort of go along with the scope of Scripture and somehow trust that God's hand is at work within it. And then this one was harder for me today, and I don't know why it is. Earlier in Leviticus, which kind of is, a, is something that overshadows this whole scene, is the when the priests sort of get torched in the temple, also didn't bug me. But this one got to me, and I, I, it fascinates me because maybe that's the way it is for a lot of us, is there, there is one... We're willing to go so far, and then we get to one spot, and we're like, do I go that far? Um, I still fall back on sort of that abiding trust in what's going on here, but it's an odd story. Um, it's, a, it's a tough story. Now, one of the things that I want to do today for us is sort of, I think what will help us get through this is to follow what the shape of the book is like, to follow what the shape of Leviticus is like at one point. And, and as many people know that this this um, image that Chris made for us is the first words of each of the first five books of the Torah. So the first one is, is the book of Genesis, but the Jews don't call it Genesis. They, they call it the Hebrew word, which means in the beginning. Um, the second one is, is the book of Exodus, and it's these are the names of the people who were who in Egypt. The third is Leviticus, uh, Vi Cree, and it's about how the Lord calls near first words of the book of Leviticus, the Lord called to them. Uh, numbers is, these are the people in the wilderness. And then I think the last one, Deuteronomy, is, now that I can't remember, is, is that these are the words that Moses spoke. It's Moses' sort of farewell sermon. 
But what's interesting in biblical scope is that what's in the middle is often the most important. And so what does it mean that Leviticus falls in the middle of these three books? Now, we know that as, as Christians, Genesis we know, Exodus we read, Leviticus no, Numbers no. Well, there's some cute stuff we like in Deuteronomy. Um, and there's the Abrahamic blessing. There's a blessing in Numbers we all quote. But those two middle books that sort of bracket it, we don't read a lot of. But I think if we follow this movement within the book itself, too, we begin to see why this book is so vital. First is that it's, it's one of the most participatory of all the books. It calls you into doing things. Well, if you think before you could print Bibles and hand them off to people, you only heard the scroll most likely read, and it was a scroll, not a book, um, at the temple, at the tabernacle. But for the people in their daily lives, what was the most important is how they could follow this law in their practices, right? And so today we take story and we take um, knowledge and we say that's got to be the most important. But in these people's lives, what's the most important is the ways that they can practice and follow into this truth. And one of the things that we talked about is at the end of the book of Exodus, they're not able to get sort of into the tabernacle or into the temple. And then at the beginning of the book of Numbers, that next book, they're in the tabernacle. Moses meets with God inside the tabernacle. And one of the things that I think is tracing between this movement, between the book at the end of the book of Exodus and what, what sort of begins the book of Numbers, is this place goes from a tabernacle they built into in the wilderness to a tent of meeting with their God. And you'll see it in the language that as it changes. It goes from this like um, tabernacle that has sort of like this cultic symbolism to it, to this, this tent of meeting, which implies that there's actually something meeting there, there's something going place. What they're doing is they're building towards being able to relate to their God in this place. And so the book's movement is one from, we built this thing, and here it is in the wilderness, to one where God is dwelling near to them in that place. God is dwelling with them in that place. And so one of the ways to sort of look at the structure of the book of Leviticus is this, which may not be, you may not be able to see it, but, but what it names here is that there's these crises in this first column. There's no entry into God's house. The second one is that the tabernacle is polluted, which, which happens when Aaron's sons die in there. And then the third one is, is sort of the response to that event as well. And what happens is in, after each of these problems, there's some legislation that's inserted, Right. So after the first one, they learn the laws of sacrifice. We went through those laws of sacrifice, the burn offering, the peace offering, the goodwill offering. And then the second sense, they learn the laws of what's clean and unclean. Remember all those food stories and all those uh, bodily fluids? Everybody's favorite portion of the book of Leviticus. Uh, and we have the joys of reading one of those outside broadcasted into the neighborhood. Um, and then the laws of holy and profane in this last section. And this is, we've talked about, it's called sort of the holiness code. Like, what does it mean to practice this holiness and reflect God's holiness out into the world? And the resolution to each of these, the first is that there's that eighth day worship where God's spirit fills the tabernacle for the first time. The second is in Leviticus 16 with those two goats is that they bring that blood in and the tabernacle is cleansed from all that's happened the past year. And they're able to approach into that inner area. And then the last is Israel's Sabbath assemblies at the house of God's produced holiness. That, that holiness is the fruit that comes out of this one. And so what that happens with the divine presence in each of these is, 
is that God fills on the eighth day. Um, there's there's that inner uh, sanctum of, of the, that Hebrew word you keep seeing up there is, is the tent of meeting. So it's changing from tabernacle to tent of, tent of meeting on the day of atonement. And then the cultic sort of uh, phenomenon inside there on the Sabbath is that these things sort of happen and move throughout there. And so what happens is, is, is the book of Leviticus is structured around these crises that then laws are issued to sort of cleanse and then they move forward in them, right? And so that's sort of where the book of Leviticus gets its shape. And each time sort of God's face is renewed in it. Now the word that we call this book Leviticus is, is reference to the Levitical priests. And really the first half of the book, 1 through 16, 17-ish, is really concerned with the lives of the priests. But what the second half, this holiness code, is about is about how all the people are supposed to be being made into this royal nation, this kingdom of priests for the sake of God. So one of the things that we talked about at the, book, at the end of the book of Exodus is that God is looking for a body in the world. And when we went all the way back to Genesis, when God calls Abraham, we talked about that, and it was a phrase that I still love, as the scandal of particularity. In Noah's flood, God tries a huge sort of solution to the problem of evil and sin in the world. And what he does after that is he calls one person and his wife out of among all the nations to begin this healing process in a different way. There's this scandal of particularity that takes place, and it's still taking place at this point in the book. Where is God going to reside in magnified presence upon the earth? Where is he going to be near to his people? At this tabernacle, at this tent of meeting. It's the scandal of particularity. Now, one of the things that happens with the Abraham story is he's told that he is going to be blessed with this so that he can bless the nations. The idea isn't for them just to be able to store these things up themselves, but to bring them out to be the light to others, to have their light go forth, to have this streams of living water flow out of the temple when it's finally built is one of the phrases the prophets will use for it. That, that this is this place where God's presence will, will sort of eke out in holiness to the rest of the world. And that's a transformation that happens in this book. And so what we see here in Leviticus 24 at the start is this, this um, gold lampstand that they're called to make and to keep continually burning. Last week, we talked about their holy calendar. They have the Sunday Sabbath, and then they have all these festivals that sort of correspond. But when they're not having festivals and when they're not having Sabbath, what they're called to do is to have this lamp continually burning in the sanctuary. Now, we've gone through the Psalms before. One of the things that the psalmist says, is, and, and the Hebrew writers are often concerned about, is the dark, the night. Now, in a world of lamps, in a world of flashlights, in a world of headlights on your car, the night isn't quite as scary. I mean, some people are still afraid of the dark, um, but we generally call that being afraid of the dark. Whereas in their society, they would call it being normal. The neurotic would not be afraid of the dark. The, the person who is not afraid of the dark would be insane. Um, because what happens is, is that's a time when people who are lawless can prolong, go out without any sort of recourse. You can't identify them because there is no street light on the corner. And not only that, there's, this, there's these animals and other things throughout these regions that the Jews live in that also come out and pray at night. 
So the idea of night is, is sort of like, it's unique to be afraid of. It doesn't quite exist here. But what God gives them is this lampstand to continually keep burning, so that as they look at the night, they can see that God's light is there. And so one of the most powerful metaphors for, for God, once you begin to get this, is that God is light. God is a light in the darkness. Now, for Christians, this comes with Jesus in John's Gospel when he says, that I am the light of the world, and the darkness shall not overcome it. Or at the end of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, it talks about how there will be no more need for lights, because God's face and presence will be with us as if it were our light. He said, I know it's a hard thing for us to grasp sometimes how important this would have been in the ancient mind, but but the idea that God's light is the safety and presence that's near to us is what's being symbolized by this lampstand. The other thing that they're called to do is to make these six loaves, or twelve loaves, and pile them in two piles of six on the front of the lamp. Now, most, most people are familiar with the, the idea that there are twelve tribes of Israel. And so what's happening with this scene, and this is near the most holy part of the sanctuary, is that God's light, God's face, his countenance, is shining upon the 12 tribes of Israel in the state of rest, in the state of being. Israel's called to be these people gathered so that God's face shines upon them continually. That God's presence shines on their tribes. Both of these, by the way, are the work of the people. They're to provide the oil, they're to make the provide the well most of mixed bread to provide the stuff for the bread. Um, both of these are their ways of sort of symbolizing their presence and how this God will be with them and they will be with this God. And God is this holy one that sort of resonates in this place. That God shall be their light. And so that's the first part of this story, this, this high holy moment that sort of shapes this time. And the second part sort of moves through that blasphemy situation that we're talking about. And it's connected, oddly enough, sometimes with those prohibitions about, you know, tooth for tooth, eye for an eye. Why put that here in this book? Why is this the place that it goes? The first thing to mention about this is that the phrase that is used for, for this blasphemy is like it's, a, it's an attack. It's like a poking holes in the divine name. And so what's happened in the camp somewhere is somebody has taken this name that's been given to them, this, this holy name, and it's, it's been repeated a couple times that you're not to blaspheme this name, and sort of punctured it and used it in a way. And the people, they, they sort of, you're, this probably happened to you when you're at a dinner party, most likely with your family, and somebody says something, sometimes it's vulgar, sometimes it's not, but everything just stops and you don't know what to do with it. It seems to be what happens here. It's everything just stops with this conflict. And they take this person, and they go to Moses, and they say, what should we do? And then Moses brings this to them, and he, he, he brings it to God. And, and sort of the lesson is, is that God says to them is that you shall stone this person for doing this. It's a tough punishment for this. It's a, it's a difficult punishment. Um, and, and almost it's like that what's happening here and why these laws are next to it is that as this person has thrown stones at God, as this person has attacked God, as this person has attempted to defame the name that's given to them as a gift of this presence of light that's near to them, so the insults will be hurled back at them. 
No, it shouldn't be lost on the Christians that Stephen, when he dies in the book of Acts, dies for, with similar charges, that he is a blasphemer. And so they bring him outside, and they stone him out there. There's something unique about the challenges here with this, with this part of Scripture. And then there's this middle part, which I, Carla used the NIV. I didn't look in the new NIV. Most of this, there's a new, new international version, which is Christian's. So great at naming things. You could have just come up with a different name. Uh, it has brand equity. But one of, the, one of the things that's true about most of these ancient laws, like this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is that they're meant to limit violence in the world. They're, not, they're supposed to say that if somebody breaks your arm, you don't get to walk off and just kill them. They're meant to sort of contain the violence. They're not meant to sort of magnify it. They're not even meant to entirely be prescriptive. Um, they're just meant to say that the laws of how you're going to do this out is you can't just elevate the concerns higher and higher until, you know, somebody steps on your toe and then you shoot them. Like, this is sort of the way that it works, is that you have to keep things equitable in your justice system, particularly around this type of violence and such. And that's one of the challenges here, is that animal, when it kills somebody, is you're allowed to offer restitution, or when it, something kills an animal, you're allowed to offer restitution. And almost throughout the ancient Near East, it's common that these people, um, when you kill somebody else, a rich person is actually allowed to pay themselves out of it. It's really only the Israelites that say, there's going to be no socioeconomic difference in murder, killing another person. Now, as much as the blasphemy case should shock us, I do think it's unique that... Israel has this relationship to human life that sees it all as incredibly fragile and valid, and that to attack it is to attack God's sort of presence in the world. We talked about this in the food laws, on how they have humane ways of sacrificing food, and not only that, they do it in such a way uh, that it appears seldom and more natural, that they have this challenge with taking life. It's not something we're often known for, but, but it is a challenge for the church. To see the taking of life is a deep and difficult challenge. It's not meant to be something we do easy. Now Jesus takes this, this and he says, you've heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, and he talks about if somebody strikes you on the cheek, you turn and offer the other cheek. If you think about that in the context of what's going on here, he's not abolishing the thing. What he's saying is instead of you doing equal, they strike your cheek, you strike their cheek. The other cheek that you offer is your own. You don't take the other person's cheek when they strike you in that instance. What you do is say, this is going to be equitable. Instead of me hitting you, why don't you strike me again? Well, totally messed up. <laughs> but this is the way that Jesus lives and models his life is to say that in a world of where we need to take, 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 and we need to push, 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 and we need to keep going and make sure everything's even, he calls us to be a people who say, if there needs to be another strike, why make it me on you? Why don't we make it you on me? Again. Now there's all sorts of, if we were preaching on that passage, all sorts of evidence around like what that means in its ancient society and how it levels things and it's an offense to the other person to act that way. But needless to say, it's a challenging and large teaching that Jesus is taking on. And yet this will get to the root of this story here, is that this blasphemy 
is the same way that Jesus responds. Jesus, too, dies as a blasphemer. That's one of the charges he's, that's brought against him, and he's taken outside the camp in a similar way, and he dies as one who's blasphemed. So as Jesus says to us, if you strike somebody, perhaps you could offer the second strike on you, or if somebody strikes you, perhaps you could offer the second strike on yourself. What he models in dying as a blasphemer in this instance is says that, yes, you've struck God. Yes, through your sin and through your distortion and through the ways you make the world cheap and difficult and, and take advantage of others and, and sort of root sin deeper into the world, you've blasphemed the holy name. And what Jesus says then after that or models in his life is that he says, now God will take on the punishment. Instead of the punishment being placed on others, the punishment will be placed on God himself and Jesus Christ. And so the book of Hebrews says that so Jesus suffered and died outside the camp to make his people holy by the means of his blood. And so let us go outside to the camp to him. This doesn't answer the difficulties of this story or question completely. We could talk about it forever. But... One of the truths I think is here is that we live in a world where this seems like the, the obvious answer. And what Christ does in himself is he goes outside and takes those things upon himself. He makes a space where it's not this way anymore. People, people use this phrase, it's sort of the end of retribution, if you follow Jesus. We go outside the camp to be with the one who modeled this for us. Because we're not waiting for a city here, it says, but a city from another place. And so we're waiting for God to come near, to be our light, to shine on us as his people. And in that way, to be the people enabled to walk outside the camp to him where he suffered. So that we, too, can be made holy by his blood. Let us pray. God, you've called us to be a holy people, called us to be a nation of priests. Your light shines upon your people, and though there is darkness in the world, the darkness shall not overcome it. God, may your light shine on us. May your provision be with us. May your face turn towards us. May we be a people who guard your holiness. May we be a people who live holy lives that shine and radiate your love out into the world. And yet may we also be those who see that the solution to us defaming your name, to puncturing your holiness, to attempting to deflate your life in the world, it's not found in our own solutions, but found in the way that your son comes among us, goes outside the camp, takes on the sins of the people, allows himself to be crucified, buried for us. May the light of that glorious resurrection, of that healing life, shine brighter here in our lives and in the world. We ask all of this 
in your holy name. Amen.